Hello again. Welcome to Engaging History. This is episode number four, The Rise of Judaism, the Assyrians, and the Persians, the last of the pre-Greek civilizations that we will discuss. My name is Christopher Kinsella. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. The podcast is essentially my opinions and interpretation of a historical events that I've studied and will now discuss. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of the podcast, podcasts in general, are to discuss history in a way that engages you, explains the world around you, and most specifically, the behavior patterns of the human race, and even some of the things you might be doing, and wondering why and how that all began, but also discussing it in a way that is understandable and interesting. In this fourth podcast, looking at the rise of Judaism, essentially the evolution of the Jewish religion. As I've said before in my introduction, back in episode one, I don't reveal my politics, but I do think it's important, and I think the listener has a right to know where my religious views are and where I stand. I am a baptized and confirmed Roman Catholic, have been all of my life. However, again, even when we get to the age of the Roman Empire and we talk about the life of Jesus Christ, bear with me as it will seem like I'm on a recruiting mission. But stay with me through the rest of the World History Podcasts, and you'll wonder why to date, at least last time I checked them out today, I haven't been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church. But again, I want to put it out there in terms of that when I discuss these other religions, that's the viewpoint that I'm coming from. The Jewish religion is one of the first eventually global monotheistic religions, monotheism being the key there, mono meaning one not polytheism. As the ancient world was getting more and more polytheistic, the Jews were focusing more on one God, Yahweh, monotheism. And while one God can seem far easier to follow, to worship, to track, here's the problem with that. As other monotheistic religions rise, following one God, it would seem like that that would eliminate tension and by extension, war. And as we're going to find out, it will do the exact opposite. Because while I worship one God, and I know it's the right God, and I tell you to worship that same right God, and you say, yep, I am worshiping one God, but it's not my God, now we have a cause for tension, possibly even war. So again, monotheism is a solution for some things. But as I talked about before, for every plus, there's also a minus. The Hebrew Bible would be a compelling force on the rise of the eventual Roman uh, Roman Catholics, Roman Catholicism, as well as Islam. And that's the second major thing that I wanted to point out. The first, that it's monotheistic. Secondly, that again, that, that Hebrew Bible will be the basis for future world religions as well. And if you can bear with me, I'd like to do with you a quick activity because visually is where really this point is driven home and possibly even can cause chills when you actually take a look at it. Listening to this, I know you'll be able to absorb some of it, but if you could draw this out with me, you'd see and it would really be able to impact you a lot more forcefully what I'm talking about here when I, ta- when I mention that the Hebrew Bible and Judaism will be the compelling force and the foundation of future world religions. So essentially what I'd like you to do on a, a slip of paper, a sheet of paper, is just to draw a line 
towards the bottom of the paper. And at the bottom of that line, right below the line, in the middle of that line, write the word Judaism down. Now, up from the center of Judaism above the line, just draw a single line coming out of that. And at the crux of that intersection of the horizontal and the vertical line, you could write Roman Roman Catholicism, because that will be a faith that will be a direct offshoot from Judaism. And we'll talk more about that several podcasts from now. So in the year 0 AD, and shortly thereafter, we get Roman Catholicism. Draw that line up a little bit further and stop. Now to the left, draw up from a 45-degree angle from that line. And on that offshoot line, write the year 1054. That's the year that we get into the Orthodox religions, which stem from Roman Catholicism which will be discussed as well in later podcasts. On the other side of that, so you're still at the top of the line where the offshoot was to orthodoxy. Now go back down to that crux between orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Now off to the right, put another line, maybe two inches long, and write the year 1555. That's where we get the offshoots of Protestantism. So we in Protestantism in the... Uh, Treaty of Augsburg, Peace of Augsburg in 1555, is where the first Protestant faith comes out, Lutheranism, based on the teachings of Martin Luther. Now, what I'd like you to do is take your pencil back down to the crux there, the 90-degree angle between Roman Catholicism line and Judaism, and right in between, right at that crux of that intersection where both lines meet, draw a 45-degree line out from both of those points, from that point, draw that line out to the right, and then you can write the word Islam in the late 500s AD. And then from that line at the end of Islam, draw a line to the left or up, another line to uh, to the right or down, and you can write on both of those lines, on the one right Sunni, and the other one, right, Shiite or Shia. Those are your two sects within Islam. That, as I will explain, if you bear with me in these future podcasts, that's where I'll explain how all of those major religions and their subsects came to be. But the point that I would like to drive home is if you go to the base, to the root, to the foundation of all of these major faiths, they come down to the Jewish faith, Judaism. With Roman Catholicism, that first group of what we'll eventually call Roman Catholics were indeed Jews. To the left, where you drew that line, orthodoxy, orthodox translated means right way. They believed they were doing things right. And the tension that ensued between the eastern half of the Roman Catholic Church and the western half based in Rome, where eventually the break would happen, more that we'll talk about in detail in later podcasts, but the way that they thought in the east that they were doing things right, hence again, orthodoxia, the right way. On the other side of that, with Protestantism, as you see, with Protestantism, the root word that comes from that, of course, protest, protesting some of the central tenets of the Roman Catholic Church. 
If you get nothing more from this and stop this podcast right now, you already have a developing, working understanding or knowledge on the foundation of the major faiths that are come, that's, was root or foundation is laid in the ancient world. From this as well as we talked about, we get Islam based on the teachings and the writings of Muhammad, which we'll also talk about. The reason why we'll talk about all these individuals is not because you've signed up for a world religions podcast, but because these were individuals that were human beings that walked the face of the earth in the time frame that we are studying. And we'll talk more about that later as, as I say, the podcasts continue to be recorded as time marches on. So those three things coming out of the foundation, the evolution of the Jewish religion, one is monotheism, two is the Hebrew Bible, and then three is that drawing of all these other major forces that will come out of that. I hope you found that drawing helpful to drive home the point of just how monumental the Jewish faith will be. From here, then, we're going to look at our one of our last of the two pre-Greek societies or civilizations, that being the Assyrians. This is a much smaller group in the sense not only of size, but also in terms of existence. They existed from roughly 860 BC to 612 BC. So if you notice, we're getting into uh, smaller and smaller time spans here, 248 years in existence. Ironically enough, is only eight years, four years older, excuse me, than the United States is in 2020. The Assyrians, however, if you by chance were doing any kind of reading about this ahead of time, if you have a working knowledge of the Assyrians, you might wonder why I would choose to discuss them as they were essentially a warlike tribe that used oppression and terror in order to control. But as we talked about before, using terror and oppression to an extreme, yes, is a bad thing. But society does have to have a healthy respect for the law for ramif negative ramifications if they break the law, otherwise you won't have law and order. So again, they take it to an extreme, but rather than discard the Assyrians because of their posture, it's still worthwhile to look at some of the contributions of their civilization. And what obviously we still have with us is you're going to see in a moment with us today. As I said earlier, if you just simply look at the uh, simple police raid when the uh, police raid a compound in order to make a drug bust or to catch a, a ring of criminals, a lot of what they're using today, we borrow directly from the Assyrians. First off is the armor and the shields. Armor and shields in order to protect their chest, to, to protect their torso, something obviously that our military still use today as well as our police forces, and rightly so. They also were the ones that first suggest battering rams in order to try to get through a door that otherwise would have been locked to them. The Assyrians would teach civilizations later on that not every door is necessarily unpenetrable, even if it's locked. The Assyrians also taught us in the way that they started training their soldiers a little bit differently. Not every soldier was taught to engage in battle, to fight. Certainly every soldier was taught to protect themselves, but not every soldier was taught for the purposes of fighting. Rather, an elite group of soldiers, after teaching them how to defend themselves, would later learn the techniques in order to be able to assist the army, the Assyrian army, from getting to point A and point B. Today, we call them the, the, get the idea of the Corps of Engineers. So the American Corps of Engineers 
Again, their playbook is taken from the Assyrians. These are the soldiers that figure out how to get the armies to cross from point A to point B, whether it be over a river system, around an unclimbable or unpenetrable mountain. They assist in uh, creating inflatable animal skins in order to be able to quietly but quickly be able to cross a river system or a small lake. Excavation techniques, instead of going over a wall, it might be quieter and a little bit more uh, stealthier to simply go underneath the wall, excavation techniques. And then lastly, one that's also overlooked oftentimes by the Assyrians is their coordination of strategy, tactics, and logistics. This is the first organization of people that produces an army that had, as we can see now from documents uncovered from this time period, from this organization of people, that there was a difference between attacking an army simply head on and hoping for the best side to win. That they actually broke it down to what on the outside seems a lot more complicated, but is a way that we've mirrored ever since. The first strategy, strategy, tactics, and logistics, although occasionally you will hear confused in the news, whereas some journalists consider those interchangeable terms for the same thing, they're very much different. Grand strategy. Grand strategy is nothing more than a fancy word for foreign policy. Does country A see B as a threat? No, then B is left alone. But what about neighboring country C? Yes, we do see that as a threat, and we need to neutralize or eliminate that threat. Grand strategy, the foreign policy for that country A for that, let's just say, a time period of a year, is to do nothing about B, but to simply neutralize C. That's grand strategy. Well, how does one go about that? If the country A is going to send its army to conquer country B, that army is going in country B is going to see A's forces moving towards it, won't they? So the Assyrians figured out this concept called strategy. Strategy is how do you get to the point of fighting? How do you get to the battlefield? As was Libby said later on, oftentimes the longest way around is your shortest way home. This is the reason why for what we call the indirect approach. It simply makes sense to engage the army at the nearest point, at the nearest intersection. But isn't that where the enemy is going to be waiting for you? So sometimes, as we learn from the Assyrians, they would have a small force advance forward right where the, uh, the enemy would be expecting them. But the larger force would be coming indirectly to the north or to the south or over from the east or swinging in from the west through a set of foothills or through a forest instead, again, where the enemy would be least expecting them. That's strategy. Tactics says, what do you do once we get there? The element of surprise is now over with. The country knows you're here to fight. Now, how do you fight? Does flank A hold itself in place while flank B engages the army? Then what does the middle flank do? That's tactics. Logistics is perhaps one of the most underappreciated aspects of warfare. But with, uh, with mis- but misunderstand this, and your best plans for strategy and tactics will simply evaporate. Logistics says how 
do the forces stay engaged? How does the attacking army coming from country A to attack B, how does the population back at the home base in A keep the army supplied? That's logistics. Making sure the army has the food, the potable water, the supplies, the weaponry, everything that they need. Depending upon what period of time one is talking about, on average, it takes four people back at home to support one soldier that is engaged in battle. If that is misunderstood, as I've said before, strategy and tactics go right down the drain. Don't believe me? Just ask Adolf Hitler in the 20th century. Ask Napoleon Bonaparte in the 19th century. More about that when we get to those individuals and the wars that they started. So what was then, with all this understanding of strategy, tactics, and logistics, why did the Assyrians fall and why on such a specific year as 612 BC? Mainly because of what we call strategic overstretch. So the reason for their downfall is that in attempting to continue to attack neighboring tribes, they simply overstretch themselves. And that's where we get one of the first laws in military history called the natural law of strategic overstretch. It's not hard to fathom or to understand that when any country sends an army out to fight, that for every one step that that soldier takes away from the home base, that costs something, doesn't it? It costs food, water, all the equipment that the soldier has. Take another step, it costs you a little bit more. The further one gets from home, the further the soldiers advance from the home base, oftentimes the more expensive it is to keep them there. Because if you can't get a bounty from the people you're conquering, if you can't take over the resources, then everything that those soldiers need has to be shipped back from home. That's what can make warfare so unbelievably expensive, so time-consuming, but also, but also, again, as mentioned earlier, if misunderstood of the laws of logistics, then you will fall to what becomes known as strategic overstretch. That is the very idea or concept that Adolf Hitler failed to understand, as did Napoleon Bonaparte. They simply went too far too fast fully expecting that the peoples that they conquered would supply them with everything they need. Great, except for one problem. The Russian people, as well as the future Soviet people, were more than well adept to understand that when they were outnumbered and being pursued by the enemy, they did a slash-and-burn retreat strategy so that, sure, occupying enemy country or invading enemy, yes, you pushed us away. Yes, you have driven us from our one of our home cities, but you will gain nothing from that except the land that you're standing on because all of our resources, if we couldn't bring them with us, the Russians or the Soviets would destroy. Ironically enough, despite the fact of being one full century apart, it's a little more than one century apart, Adolf Hitler and Napoleon Bonaparte would fall for the same reasons, by the same nation of people. So that ends our discussion there on the Assyrians. And the final one that we're looking at here is that of the Persians. Persians in modern-day Turkey, just east of the country of Greece. Persia was a fascinating 
group of individuals unified and strengthened by one of their greats called Cyrus the Great, who ruled from 559 to 530 BC. The Persians, by and large, left a lot that we can learn from, as we'll talk about in a minute. But there was two individuals that succeeded or came after Cyrus the Great that attempted to do something great for the Persian people, but failed twice. First under Darius and then under Xerxes, the Persian kings attempted to attack and occupy Greece, once in 490 BC and the other in 480 BC. And the problem was they lost both times. Remember that, because we're going to come back to visit that. And when we do, the Persian people will pay the ultimate price for those two leaders attempting to attack their neighbor to the west two times. So what do we learn then from the Persians? First off, they were excellent people at using times of peace and prosperity. We see little evidence that there was unnecessary use of oppression or terror, the kingdom being so large that they divided it into governable regions, something that the Greeks will learn from, the Romans And if you think again, no tie to modern times, wrong again, because even we are still doing this. No, no, no. You say we live in the United States. Boom, that's it. No, it's not, of course, because within the United States, we have 50 states and we further subdivide from there. Each state is divided into counties. Some has a small number of counties like Delaware with three of them. Ohio has 88 subdivided governable regions, counties. And even then we subdivide once again into townships and then cities and towns. Why? Because the Persians were the first to know and certainly the ones to teach us that all politics is local. And we'll talk far more about that too in future podcasts. All army officers had regular duties, obviously to protect the land and the royal family or the king, but that the soldiers in times of peace and prosperity would also be used to collect taxes when a threat to the kingdom was imminent. They also used royal inspectors to maintain peace and order, something that will be the forerunner of an eventual idea of a police force. But the actual idea of a police force that you and I can call today through 911, that ironically would not start as we know it in its current form until after the Industrial Revolution. And then finally, we also learn from the Persians, is the establishment of permanent roads, which were also maintained on a regular basis. As minor as that may seem, The idea of a permanent accessible road is key to a prosperous civilization that can protect themselves. Is is innocuous and as boring as a simple road may seem, especially in this day before the age of automobiles and high-speed traffic. The fact that a people can get from point A within a given city or town to another or an entire country as we're going to find out from the Persians, is key. In more uh, modern times, nobody understood this better in the 20th century than President Dwight Eisenhower. It horrified General Eisenhower right before World War II when he had to drive from the East Coast around North Carolina and the Virginia border, and he had to drive to San Francisco. And it took him over 62 days to make that trip 
with a car from the late 30s, early 40s. So we're talking a reliable car here, but it took 62 days. Folks, America's river systems would have been faster than the outdated and badly maintained roads that was predominant throughout the United States. It's no surprise that when he became president of the United States, he sought to eliminate that confusion and those delays by passing the Federal Highway Act in 1956. That Highway Act would take cross-country travel from 62 days down to less than five days if you're driving through the night. However, as much as that was passed off as this is something America needs so that we can get to grandma's house without having to go over the hills and through the meadows, no, there was actually a far more important reason to establish those roads, and that was because we were in the age of nuclear warfare threats. Every highway that would be called an interstate would have a set of criteria that had to be met back in the 1950s that is still with us and observable today. More about that when we get to the podcast on American history in the 1950s. So that wraps up then what we learned then as well as from the Persians. We discussed the Assyrians as well, and then the rise of the Jewish faith. So thank you for listening. In the next episode, we're going to look at the first of several podcasts on Greek civilization, the ancient Greeks, and how much, again, that they left to us. Any kind of advanced math you're doing, we're going to see where that came from, from the ancient Greeks. The most commonly emulated forms of government throughout the world today, we're going to find out, started with the Greeks. So between now and then, go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments that you might have. Any book recommendations as well, I'm always open to. Other than that, feel free, as I say, to uh, leave me a review on my website. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.